All right, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, today's event is called How American Healthcare Killed My Father. It's the title of an article written by uh, David Goldhill, who is uh, our first speaker today. Uh, you should have picked up a copy of his article out on the registration table. We also have a couple more Cato, or a couple of Cato pieces out there for you as well. Um, Mr. Goldhill has a very interesting story. He's the president and CEO of GSM, which is also known as the, the Game Show Network. It's a game content provider distributing uh, competition programming through a 66 million subscriber cable television network. And it has a casual and skill-based online games portal, which is gsn.com. Now, being of the gaming world, he wasn't particularly interested in healthcare policy until his father acquired a hospital uh, infection and uh, ultimately passed away. So he got interested in the, the topic of healthcare and healthcare policy, and uh, two years later he published this article in The Atlantic, uh, which is an extraordinary piece. And uh, that's why we're here today to hear him talk about it. And uh, with that, I'll turn things over to uh, Mr. Goldhill. Thank you very much, and it's obviously very rewarding to see so many people turn out to talk about game shows, a subject very near and dear to my heart that gets near, not nearly enough attention in the legislative process. Um, I, I want to thank Michael and, and Cato for the invitation. Uh, I guess I should say first off that uh, I'm not a libertarian. Uh, some of my best friends are libertarians, but I'm not one myself. I did happen to notice one of the blogs that discussed my article uh, referred uh, to what I was proposing as a pseudo-libertarian fantasy. And I thought to myself, what does it say about the nature of our healthcare debate that somebody calling for mandatory catastrophic insurance, mandatory health savings accounts, mandatory price disclosure, a, a massive new uh, government transfer program uh, to support uh, private healthcare spending, uh, and all sorts of government involvement in information dissemination uh, is described as libertarian. I think it really says more about where healthcare is than it does about me, uh, or frankly, the article. Uh, I'm not an expert on healthcare. Don't want to pretend to be. What I am, like 300 million other people, is a customer of healthcare, a patient, uh, someone for whom it touches like it does all of us our lives. And the perspective I wrote from was really that. Uh, as a person who's run a variety of businesses, uh, the game show one is actually fairly recent. It's about a year old. But I've run a variety of media, entertainment, and financial services businesses, uh, both traditional ones and technologically based ones. But, but just looking at it from the point of view of someone who's used to running businesses, someone who's used to being a customer, and someone like all of us who's been a patient, that's the perspective of the article. Uh, I also didn't write the article probably for many of the people in this room. Uh, it's not written for experts. It's not written for people who care intimately about the legislative process uh, and the state of play. Uh, uh, in the current politics of healthcare, It's written for the 55% of Americans who say they're satisfied with their existing health care arrangements. Um, I, I believe if you're satisfied with your existing health care arrangements, it's because you don't know what it costs. And I don't mean just in terms of money. And frankly, I think all of the efforts here are likely to be peripheral to the fundamental issues we have in health care until that 55% feels differently about what it has. Uh, I have done a number of interviews in which I've been asked to criticize one party or the other. And, and I say the same thing, and, and forgive me, but this is probably the extent of my political knowledge and views, which is we really can't expect politicians to go up against very large, very well-funded interest groups when a majority of Americans think things are fine. And it's just an unfair test for politicians of either party. Uh, and one, frankly, living outside of a political world, I, I, don't, I don't apply. Uh, I am here because of my father. Uh, like all of us, you know, I have plenty of stories that, about health care that, that are mystifying to me, certainly compared to what I see in the rest of, of, of my life. Uh, but specifically, my deep interest in this began with what happened to my dad. Uh, a couple of years ago, my father, uh, working, frankly, up to the day this happened, walked into a hospital with a fairly mild case of pneumonia. It was an 82-year-old man. He turned 83 in the hospital. Um, variety of ailments that you see in 82-year-old men. Uh, I didn't expect him to live forever, forever, and I don't think he expected it either. He was a physician. Um, 
he was in the hospital less than two days before he'd contracted sepsis. And over the course of the next five weeks, he had a variety of secondary infections. And by the time he died, uh, that original pneumonia was long gone, uh, and he died from uh, a variety of infections he'd picked up in the hospital. Um, like most of us, uh, at the time, I wasn't really aware of what was happening. Uh, you see your father, a loved one, getting sick and getting sicker. It's a concern, and you're dealing with it, obviously, on a moment-by-moment reactive basis, the same way, frankly, that the hospital deals with it. Um, but uh, my sister's an emergency room physician, and so she had much greater perspective on it. And then uh, I think it was literally two weeks after my father's death, uh, I read this article in The New Yorker uh, by Dr. Gawande in which he talked about preventable hospital infections. And he talked about the fact that most estimates are that there are roughly 100,000 people, 100,000 Americans a year, that die from infections that they receive in hospitals. And there are two or 300,000 other deaths that are attributable to medical errors, but that this is one that's regarded as relatively correctable. He talked about a doctor who'd been running around the country with a series of protocols for sterility that where they were applied reduced these uh, uh, deaths from uh, infection by two-thirds, three-quarters, or more. And I think, you know, like, like most people at that point, living in, 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 in grief and loss, uh, I, was, I was, you know, angry and, and looking for someone to, to, to blame. I think all of us from that position when these things happen. But there's a, there's a light bulb that went on in my mind, which is, you know, I've run a series of consumer-facing businesses, and uh, a lot of my friends run businesses. 100,000 deaths from something that's preventable? I mean, I, I thought of, being from Hollywood, I thought of all of the Hollywood movies in which the, the corporation is the villain. And even the most villainous corporation didn't go out and kill 100,000 of its customers. Um, it, 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 just, it just felt bizarre, just difficult to explain. And I began to think more carefully about what I'd seen, because I spent a lot of the five weeks my father was in the hospital with my father. And I thought about how different the world of healthcare is from the world of everything else. Uh, and, and, and what I want to talk about today is, is that the nature of healthcare, or is that something we have created because we believe healthcare is different? Uh, needless to say, anyone who read, has read my article knows I, I tend towards the latter point, that a lot of these things that are very different about healthcare are things we've created. How do you see it as a customer? Well, one thing you see, which is astonishing, is you see this extraordinary diagnostic equipment coexisting with a type of information system that I haven't seen maybe since the DMV in the 80s. I mean, if you really think about how a hospital deals with information technology, it's astonishing. It's, it's, it's significantly worse than your typical dry cleaner does. Now, one of the things I want to emphasize is that from a government perspective, a lot of people look at that and say, okay, let's get them information technology. I'm a businessman. When I see something like that, I know a choice has been made, a response to an incentive has occurred, or a disincentive. There was no congressional act that forced my dry cleaner to invest in information technology. He just didn't want to lose shirts, just shirts. The fact that my father was twice taken for procedures meant for other patients is a cost of not investing in information technology. Why was that cost not borne in the system in such a way that someone was incented to invest? And that's a lot of the questioning process I did. Uh, my father was in the ICU for a lot of his time in the hospital. ICUs emphasize sterility. They pick up patient trash once a day. There's not a patient's room that isn't overflowing with trash in a sterile environment. If you've ever seen uh, anything manufactured in a sterile environment in the corporate world, whether it's uh, computer disks uh, uh, or even satellites, you'll recognize that those things can't coexist. They don't make any sense. Um, you see, uh, in, you see the, the shifts in hospital labor. And again, I have an advantage here because my sister's an emergency room physician. There's no patient-facing reason for the way labor is allocated and shifted in a hospital. And what you come to realize as you spend time and you think these things through is that the reason for that is my father wasn't the customer. The customer in his case was Medicare. And all of us in business know our job is to be responsive to our customers. And so the first thing I saw is that this hospital has correctly responded to its customer. It's about volume. It's about clarity of billing. Um, it's about things, frankly, that we as patients don't care about. We're not the customer. 
we got a bill for my father's care of uh, roughly $640,000. That sounds like a lot of money. Our share was $992. I wish it had been more. Because if our share had been more, there's no chance on earth that that hospital would have been able to look my mother in the eye and defend its treatment. Uh, And one of the disadvantages you have when everything is paid for is you don't make decisions. Interestingly, the benefit of hindsight, with my father's specific case, and every case is different, is that we would have been better off treating him in a clinic, which would have emphasized just drugs and oxygen. We would have been better off, once he'd gotten sepsis, uh, giving him a trach at that point and going through the rehab. We would have been better off with cheaper alternatives, not in terms of money, because we didn't pay anything, but in terms of the quality of care. And one of the things that happens when you take out the price decision is you unfortunately, perversely, take out some of the urgency in making decisions about care. Most people don't believe that. I saw it up close. The fact that the hospital never had to wonder, how is this going to be paid for, also didn't create that conversation of, what are your real treatment alternatives? Again, every case is different. But this we clearly saw, and we clearly saw it, unfortunately, in retrospect. Um, The reality, of course, is when you start thinking about health care, you see that every single person has got a story. Some are less tragic than my father, although I'll tell you at 100,000 people a year, the number of letters I get since I wrote this article from people who've experienced this, often in very similar, in some cases even more negligent circumstances, uh, is extraordinary. Uh, The fact that it itself isn't our debate about health care, that our debate isn't about quality, it's just about money, indicates something very, very wrong. But I want to come back to that. Everybody's got a story, right? And when you, when you deal with healthcare, when you spend time in the healthcare system, you see things that if you try to compare it to anything else, seems bizarre. Why, when you go into a doctor's office, and almost every doctor's office, you see this, are there files on the wall? You know those file storage cabinets? You see them everywhere, all the patient records, right? It's an advertisement for, we haven't invested in technology in 40 years. Where else would you see that? You wouldn't see it if you go into a lawyer's office or an accountant's office. The last thing they would want you to see is that they use paper, right? Isn't it bizarre that that's a choice that's been made? Why has that choice been made? Uh, Why is it when you go see a physician whose practice is mostly insurance-based, will you wait in a waiting room? And if you go see an eye doctor or a dentist or a cosmetic surgeon or almost anybody who is not getting most of their money for insurance, you don't wait. Why do they keep you waiting? They know their schedule. Uh, Why is it that you can't read the bill the insurance company sends to you explaining your reimbursement? Why in this day and age? Do you know any other business that talks to its customers that way? Any other. Why is it that there's no good information on quality and outcomes and pricing on something we're spending roughly 20% of our income on, and you can find out anything you want about any other business? I, I went online uh, to try to buy a used fighter jet. You can do that. <laughs> you cannot find online the price of chemotherapy or anything about it. Why? And when you're a businessman, some of these things become even more apparent as you think about the industry. Um, You know, I've been uninsured for a couple periods of my life. And I recognize when I was uninsured, I approached healthcare differently. For one thing, I negotiated everything. And every doctor will negotiate, every provider will negotiate, because it's one of those industries in which marginal cost is very, very tiny. You notice, if you remember, if you're as old as I am, unfortunately, many people in this audience are not, but you remember house calls. Now, what's interesting about house calls is, in any any economic system, the most costly function is the skilled person. That's why we pay CEOs so much money and baseball players so much money and doctors so much money, right? They are the real cost. Well, think about the productivity difference in a world that went from a doctor making house calls to a doctor seeing 10 or 15 patients an hour. That must have involved a massive amount of savings in the system. Has any of us seen it in our bill? When, when, when I was growing up, there were a handful, a handful of companies on earth who owned computers and doctors made house calls. 35 years later, every single American has a computer in their home 
and none of us can afford to see the doctor without insurance. So it can't be just about technology, can it? Um, and as a business person, you think about things uh, that you don't see thought about uh, when healthcare is discussed. And I think the big reason for that is we think of healthcare as an island, as not part of the economy. Anyway, my obsession with what happened to my father uh, and my own lack of a personal life or other interests enabled me to spend about a year and a half really asking some questions about healthcare. And many of you probably work in this area and are going to be completely unshocked by what I say. So let me tell you, looking at it, it all shocked me. The things that shocked me most, my mother's bill. My mother's bill was itemized. It was actually $636,000. So I did some, some fun things. I've actually tried this at dinner parties with friends who talk about their medical bills. I tried to buy everything on the bill. Is it an ICU room in an Upper East Side New York hospital? Let's say I rented him a suite at the Four Seasons, which is frankly a much more comfortable room, the most expensive hotel in New York for five weeks. He's got specialized equipment. I'll lease it. I'll pay for his doctors to exclusively see him two hours a day. I'll pay for 24-hour nursing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you do all this stuff, and it's easy to do, right? You can calculate it. And you wind up with a number that not only is a fraction of $636,000, but none of which has any relationship to the charges you're seeing. None. There's this, the bill means nothing. It's never intended to be paid by anyone, right? The Medicare didn't pay that. Medicare paid a fraction of it. So when you're a businessman and you see that prices have no meaning, price is the basic information tool in capitalism. How do we have a system where price has no meaning and we think it's in any way about competition or free enterprise? It can't be. Prices are our, our, our number one information tool. So that was shocking to me. And then I went and looked at my company's health plan. And I said, all right, let's say you're a 23-year-old kid joining our company in an entry-level job. Maybe you're paid $30,000, $35,000 a year. We have a pretty good health plan. Uh, if you're single, we probably would bear about $6,500 a year. If you're married, somewhere closer to 10. And if you've got a family, somewhere in the low to mid-teens, 12 five to 14, depending on which, which state you live in. So I said, all right, let's look at that 23-year-old, and let's crunch some numbers. Let's look at how much we pay for that person's care, because after all, that's just, if you're a businessman, you know that's just coming out of wages, right? When we hire somebody, we don't look at their salary. We look at their total cost to us, right? And we decide whether to create a job or not based on whether that total cost to us is acceptable. So if, if your health insurance adds, if you're entry level, and that health insurance is adding 20 25% to your cost of our hiring you, that's how we view you costing us. It doesn't matter what your paycheck says. It's irrelevant to us. Um, but let's look at that 23-year-old. We're paying some of the insurance. They're paying some of the insurance. He or she will have some out-of-pocket every year. Um, they're paying Medicare tax. Uh, we're paying Medicare tax. What I didn't look at until later, I didn't realize how big it was, is the percentage of the general taxes they pay that's going to subsidize Medicare, Medicaid, nothing. So I just excluded that. And then I said, all right, over your lifetime, what's going to happen? Well, on average, your income will grow 3% a year. And then I made a crazy assumption, which is that health care costs grow only 3% a year. As many of us know, since well before Medicare, health care costs have been growing in excess of income. Let's make this crazy assumption just to see where the numbers come out. And let's run that over this person's life. Gets married, has a couple kids, kids grow up, they leave, back to the empty nest, retires at 65, lives to 80. Has one or two health incidences that maybe cause a little burst and out-of-pocket um, over their lives. But let's just look at the input for a second. The number's unbelievable to me. It's $1.7 million for an entry-level person whose income's growing 3% a year. So when they retire at 65, they'll earn $105,000 a year. $1.7 million. It's unsustainable. Now, here's why we think it's sustainable. Only roughly about 20%, somewhere between 20 and 25% of that money ever passed through my 23-year-old's wallet. It was Medicare tax. It was subsidies. It was the company paying on their behalf. It's hidden. But it's $1.7 million. It's 40% of that person's income. And as we all know, listening to the debates on health care, that's one of the lucky ones, right? He's got employer-supplied insurance. Now, we also know that, um, uh, uh, also know that healthcare, there's nothing that's going to make health care costs grow less uh, than or grow equal to our income uh, other than miraculous intervention. That's a number that shocked me. Um, 
another number that shocked me is Medicare. Oh, not how much Medicare is costing the government and it's going to bankrupt the government and we got it. We all know that, right? That's background noise. Government going to be bankrupted by Medicare. That's not what was interesting to me. What was interesting to me is that the average senior citizen today seems to be paying a significantly greater percentage of their income out of pocket than the average senior citizen was in 1964. So forget about, forget about what it's done to the government. It's, 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 it's not a perfect statistic to calculate, but at this point it seems that the average senior citizen is paying something in the high teens of income out of pocket. Now, obviously, there's a lot of variation. For some senior citizens who have extraordinary expenses, this feels great. But what's interesting is almost nobody I mention that to ever nods and says, yeah, of course. We've gotten to a point, we've evolved so slowly here, that the whole point of Medicare, which was to protect seniors from the crushing burden of health care, has failed from the perspective of seniors. And they're not aware of it, let's face it. Most of us are not, because we get gradually used to a certain reality, uh, and and we deal with that. Um, So that was shocking to me. Uh, The size of Medicaid is shocking to me, not not because when you add it all together, it's $350 billion, but because of the type of safety net you could build with $350 billion. You know, I am a Democrat and thought of myself as reasonably left. Uh, I, I know I have a lot of company here. Um, but, you know, you got $360 billion, and you are not covering 15% of the population. I have to say, why? When you add to $200 million we're subsidizing Medicare, you could literally buy catastrophic insurance for 100 million people and give each of them a $3,000 check each year. So what does that mean? You have a poor family of four. That's a $12,000 amount to spend on health care or save. It's extraordinary. How is it on $360 billion? We're not doing that. That was, as an outsider, as someone not involved in the debates, just shocking. Um, There's now one insurance company employee for every two doctors. That's incredible to me. This is a system being eaten by intermediaries. And by the way, we're all bad at our job. I'm an intermediary. Why on earth anyone thinks an employer is going to be good at disciplining health care costs and results? I have no idea. That's not what we do for a living. I'm in the game show business. I am not in the healthcare business, and every single one of these employers being given mandates is not in the healthcare business. Why we're relied on to exercise the discipline the system needs is it's absurd. The insurance companies whose primary role is that have already failed at it. Why employers will be good at it, I have no idea. But we have grown at the point now where the cost of insurance itself, just the cost of the system, just what, it, what we have to pay for intermediaries is $500 per American per year. It's what we used to pay on health care before Medicare per American per year. That's just the cost of administration. Um, but the last thing, uh, uh, there are two more facts, I'm sorry. The other thing that I thought was funny, and, and there are two ways to view this, I admit, is that spending by uninsured is almost equal to spending by insured out of pocket. Now, one way to look at it is to say, well, sure, but the insured spend four or five times of other people's money, what the uninsured do. The uninsured are not getting adequate care. And that may be right. But there's another way to look at it, which says they're both spending up to the marginal utility of care, and it's almost exactly the same number. It gets at the key moral hazard issue at the heart of debates about whether insurance should finance health care. Let me tell you the last thing that shocked me. When we talk about, and this directly obviously comes from my father's experience, when we talk about health care in this country, we don't talk about quality. We talk about money. Nobody is talking about, are we getting a good deal for $2.5 trillion? Is our health care any good? Are we achieving results? We just ask, can we pay for it? And I will tell you as a businessman, I can think of no other place, maybe outside of government spending, where that occurs among consumers, among businesses, they're financiers. Nobody ever says, can we pay for it instead of, is it worth it? Are we getting value? You know, I, I, I've read some excellent books. I think the book Overtreated uh, by Brownlee is a terrific book. She suggests that as much as one quarter of health care may have negative impact on our health. I think we have forgotten what the purpose of health care is. It's health. And if we're not buying health, what exactly are we spending the money on? And it, it, again, an outsider's astonishment. Are we really talking about how to pay for something without knowing if it creates any value? Um, 
the reality I began to see as I looked at some of these numbers is that healthcare is an island. It's an intentional island. We in our souls believe there's something different about healthcare. And as I've gotten into this discussion, a few of the of the uh, talks I've done, there's been someone from the other side, of, of the other point of view, who emphasizes this. Um, and I'm not sure if that's right. I mean, clearly there are some things that are different about healthcare. You know, there are things that are different about everything. There are things that are different about game shows. I'd be proud to talk about them. But the question becomes. In our effort to deal with what's different, have we made it so much more different uh, that we've created this terrible series of perverse incentives and disincentives that have produced results we've had? A couple things I've noticed. One, insurance. Insurance is a financial product designed to protect against rare, large, and unpredictable occurrences. Most of healthcare is uninsurable. It just is. It's just you cannot use insurance as a way to finance something that is predictable and small. The moral hazard issues are too great. The administrative cost is too massive. Um, and the degree in which you separate the consumer from the provider through an intermediary is too damaging. Outside of healthcare, insurance is used exclusively for what I described. And the problem with the insurance model, cost I've mentioned, is moral hazard. Moral hazard is so pervasive in our healthcare system that it is fundamentally, not exclusively, but fundamentally the thing that is not just driving up costs, but is creating treatment well in excess of what we demand and often at great risk to our health. Uh, it is everywhere, and it is unquestioned. Uh, I read uh, a study um, that Johns Hopkins did about four or five years ago in which it made the argument that roughly 40% of Americans have a chronic condition, and therefore we need an expansion of the insurance safety net. And I thought to myself, how can you insure one out of every two people? Where else would you do that? It's not that you can't pay for them. It's not that you can't finance them. But would you use insurance? If one out of two of our homes was going to burn down, do we really believe insurance would be the right way to finance that? Uh, it, 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 it was so unquestioned, though, is what I've seen everywhere I've looked in healthcare. Some people refer to healthcare, to health insurance, as healthcare. A lot of politicians are guilty of this. How many politicians have you heard say 15% of America has no healthcare when they mean no health insurance? Insurance is a form of financing, and it is almost totally inappropriate for most healthcare. And yet, not only is it exclusively what we use, but it's a model that we endlessly stretch. Let's look at the rest of the of, of our economy and see where insurance provides value for its extraordinary cost and where it doesn't. But we won't do that. The other thing I see in healthcare that I don't see in other places is cost is regarded as something exogenous to the system, independent of demand, um, as, as if it's imported from some other planet. Uh, if you're a business person, you know cost is a function of demand. I, I'll give you the Tom Cruise example. Uh, this is not about Tom Cruise's healthcare. Um, the cost of, a Tom, of using Tom Cruise in a Tom Cruise movie went up radically over a 10-year period. So the Tom Cruise in a Tom Cruise movie cost a minimum of $25 million. Nothing changed about Tom Cruise, not his molecules, not his haircut, you know, not his skill. Why were people willing to pay $25 million for a Tom Cruise movie at the end and $10 million before? To a movie maker, the cost went up, right? But, of course, what happened is the DVD explosion happened. I can get more revenue out of a Tom Cruise movie. I have a better chance of getting more revenue if I hire Tom Cruise as opposed to if I hire, I don't know, let's say me. Um, it's really easy when you're in the entertainment business to recognize that every cost is just somebody's paycheck or somebody's dividend check. That's all it is. We're, we're, not, we're not grabbing moon rocks and turning them into drugs. When you decide to introduce a product, you are doing so at a price point you think the market will bear, not because of what your costs are. Your costs then drive from that. And in healthcare, there seems to be no awareness. People talk about rising costs of healthcare as if it's not something driven by rising demand. What we have in healthcare is rising prices. And once you have rising prices, then you have rising costs. Why? Because you'll bid more for everything. I'll pay, if, I, if, I'm, if my movie can go from earning $100 million to $200 million, I'll pay more for Tom Cruise. If I can sell an MRI at $1,500, I'll pay more for the machine. GE and Siemens will put more features in the machine. They will charge more, and they will pay their suppliers more, and so on and so on. 
And what looks to people like cost-pushing up prices is, if you've been in any other business other than healthcare, is prices pushing up costs. And prices, of course, get pushed up by demand. And this fundamental idea, which struck me as just bizarre, and is, you know, I, I only really hear it, let's face it, in government-funded services. You hear it in education. You hear it in defense. Um, that costs exist independently. I, I saw a proposal to mitigate cost control in healthcare by requiring people to pay no more than CPI plus one. And I thought, how interesting. Why do you assume prices should grow by CPI, much less CPI plus one? Look, I can make you a case for an industry that in the last 40 years saw massive increases in productivity at the skilled professionals at its core, in infusion in technology that enabled much more rapid, much more complete diagnosis, reduced the amount of labor it took to get the diagnosis, a change in procedures that meant that recovery from most surgery is a day instead of three weeks, the introduction of pharmaceuticals that took intensive hands-on treatment and made it about a pill whose marginal cost to produce is one cent. And if I described that industry to you and took out some key words, you would sit there if you were a Wall Street analyst and say, I don't know how they're going to keep their prices up. That is literally the description of what causes prices to decline in every other industry on earth except this one. And if you come from the outside world and look at it, you sort of scratch your head when you hear people confidently say, it's about technology pushing the prices up. I, I wrote my article on a Mac uh, that cost, I think, one one-thousandth of the price of the typical computer when I was a kid and obviously can do things that that computer couldn't dream of doing. Same time frame. I've run technology companies. There is, there's this assumption that the cost of technology is the cost of discovery. or The guys in the white coats, you know, using, that's not it. It's commercialization. All technology is commercialization. We already know how to do things. It's when they become commercial, how they become commercial, how we price them. That's what technology is. It's not these miraculous discoveries that we have to pay for. It's absurd. And if you lived in any other industry on earth, you, you, would, you would see that. Um, I mentioned the confusion of money spent and quality, which you see everywhere in healthcare. And again, if you exist, I mean, the rest of us should be so lucky that we could get our consumers to believe that the amount of money they spent determined the quality of our product. Uh, there's another thing that I see in healthcare that surprises me as a businessman, which is that efficiency is, is somehow about process instead of about results. You cannot predict what's going to be efficient. It's the reason we have markets. They do things that seem inefficient that drive better results. One of my favorite books, I always recommend this book highly, I think I may be the only person who read it, uh, was a book called The Box. Um, and further undermining my, my reputation for not having much of a life, The Box is a history of the shipping container. Uh, we're not going to make a movie out of it. Um, the point of The Box is the shipping container is the most idiotic idea in the history of mankind. I am going to take all products, no matter what they look like, no matter what their shape is, and I'm going to put them in a standardized box to ship them. So if they're nice little boxes that fit in a box, great. If they're motorcycles, they still go in the box. You've got to put the motorcycle in another box to put it in a box. The most inefficient thing you can imagine. And, of course, the introduction of the shipping container was opposed by everybody, governments, businesses, unions. It's inefficient. It's absurd. It only survived and thrived because it worked. Because the reality is accepting the inefficiency of standardization led to far greater efficiency. And it's a fascinating history. I mean, almost all of globalization is because of the shipping container. Almost every reason for where every manufacturer on earth now is located is because of the shipping container. The idea was a box. That's it. It's fascinating to think of. And when you work in business, you see this all the time. You see efficiency as a result of some guy trying this, it doesn't work, some guy trying that, it doesn't work. And it's often the thing that if you, if you look top down, you thought would work, doesn't. It's an accident. We all use computers, right? Computers take a simple keystroke and make it eight keystrokes. That's inefficient. You could just see somebody saying, what a total waste of time, right? I need eight, I need eight zeros and ones to get the A I had before. Obviously, efficiencies and results. It's not in process. And it's one of the things that makes top-down regulation of healthcare so difficult. It's so complex, so individual, uh, that it doesn't work well. And then finally, I will use what must be the most overworked uh, uh, metaphor in this. There is a fundamental confusion in healthcare between symptoms and diseases. Um, underuse of IT is my favorite one. 
We're a, you know, you can look at any study that says that the rate of return on information technology investment in healthcare would be extraordinary. 80%, 90%, 100%. We put $40 billion in, we'll get $40 billion in savings back. So a lot of people nod their head and say, let's put $40 billion in. That's sort of not the way I look at it. Why on earth is there, I mean, I love it when I can get an extra, you know, tenth of a basis point uh, uh, on my treasury bonds. Why on earth is an 80% IRR investment not being made by an industry? What does it tell you that nobody in the industry can capture that gain? That's the problem. The IT is just the symptom. Buy them the IT, they still won't use it because what makes people use IT isn't the box sitting on their desk. It's the fact that you use it to ensure you know, better, uh, uh, better patient care, more transparency, portability of records, all things that help the customer. If helping the customer doesn't get you to invest on your own in the technology, why do you think having someone invest for you is going to get you to do that? It's not. That's not, that's not what technology is and how people use it. That's a symptom of an underlying problem that we're not the customer, and it's an important symptom. Uh, I hear all the time, you know what we got to do? we got to make everybody operate like the Mayo Clinic or, 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 or Cleveland. You hear that all the time. And as a business person, you step back and say, wait a minute, why doesn't everyone operate like that? If those are better models for customers, and it looks like they may well be, why haven't they won? Why haven't they organically triumphed? Why do we have worse models winning? So we can put together a lot of regulations that say act more like Mayo, or we can try to understand why everybody isn't already like Mayo and fix that. That's the disease. And finally, high profits. A lot of people say that high profits are a problem in this industry. Well, we just gave the profits away. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the article is if we confiscated all health insurance profits, all health industry profits, I think we'd pay for something like two weeks of our health care. In fact, if we confiscated everybody's profits, we'd, every industry, we'd pay for less than five months of our health care. We'd have a very difficult economy as well. High profits is a symptom. The fact that you can persistently have high returns on equity in a business indicates that the pricing mechanism, which is supposed to drive more capacity and price, which would self-drive, isn't working. High profits aren't the problem. They're the symptom of the problem. Um, forgive me, I'm going on a little bit. What I did in this article, fundamentally, was, I, mean, I know it's characterized heavily as calling for consumer-driven care. I think what I called for is balance, is a recognition there are things that governments can do well, and they should do them. Uh, there are things that we need individuals to do. We are the only ones that can bring discipline to the system, not just in terms of price, but definitely in terms of price, but also in terms of quality and accountability and service. What happens in a consumer-driven system is not you get hit by a bus, and then you pick up the phone and you call around to see who's going to help you. What happens in a consumer-driven system is that providers fight for you in the same way now they fight for Medicare or insurance companies or employers. They create systems designed to be accessible by and serve you as customers. It, 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 this is so often misunderstood. It, it itself is a surprise. Um, how many of us are active consumers in what we buy? Very few of us. That's not the point. Walmart doesn't exist because you walk in there and say, damn it, what's your price on toothpaste? No, I want lower. Walmart has you the lowest price on toothpaste because they know that's how to get you to walk in the store. You know it before. That's, that's how they've created their, their brand. Um, there is role for insurance among catastrophes, true catastrophes, not what we call catastrophic now. And there's a big role for savings. And a lot of really what the insurance system does is enforces savings. But unfortunately, rather than actually put those savings away, uh, we have this pyramid scheme, which gives it to people who use health care today and lets us worry about how we'll health fund health care tomorrow. To some extent, I feel like I've sort of wandered into a religious debate uh, and not an economic one. There are people who believe that healthcare is fundamentally different from anything else, and that's just the way it is, that every factor except how we pay for it is exogenous, how much we need, what we'll pay, what type of quality we'll get, what type of service we get. That's all independent. As you know, I, I don't believe that. You'll hear things like healthcare is not a commodity, not subject to the market. Healthcare is a right. No one chooses to get cancer. I think a lot of these criticisms make an ideal perfect the enemy of the good. I don't believe there's a perfect healthcare system. I don't believe we will be any good as healthcare consumers. I just think we'll be better than what we have. And I think at two and a half trillion dollars, we're probably already spending enough money 
to pay for everything we need from a healthcare perspective, and probably a lot of what we want too, and at much higher quality. And until I think we can answer those questions as to why we're not getting that, I think it's an enormous risk to put more stories on this collapsing building. You know, at the end of the day, there are some very big questions about health care that we haven't chosen to answer. I don't know what health care is. My insurance company will pay for my Crestor to control my cholesterol, but not for me to eat more fish. Eating more fish would actually be more effective and probably more cost-effective. You know, we pay for the results of diabetes. We don't pay for gym memberships. Um, we pay for anti-anxiety drugs. We don't pay for more parks or more vacation. I often ask the question, do we know if we would be healthier if we spent another $150 billion on health care or if we just gave everyone a week off? Nobody knows the answer to that. That's not the problem. There's no mechanism for that trade-off. Healthcare funding is all about segregating a very large part of our economy to be used for healthcare and healthcare only. And if it's not used for healthcare, it's used for healthcare by somebody else. There are no trade-offs between the island of healthcare and all the other things in life that affect not just our happiness, but also our health. I, I just close with one, with one thing. More than 50% of deaths in America now are from heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, accidents, and homicides. More than 50% of deaths every year. In each of those, at the state of our current health care, we have a lot of evidence that the way to reduce death is through a variety of lifestyle choices, funding, opportunities, and less from care. And yet, as a society, we'll spend more and more on care. And so one of the questions I asked as an outsider is, the problem with health care is it's not just an island from the rest of our economy. It's an island from the rest of our health. It's almost as if it's something different than health. I mean, the questions I asked about Crestor and fish, I mean, we all naturally say, well, you know, we can't have health insurance pay for fish. That's not my point. My point is we define health care as that which someone else will pay for for us, at least in part. And I think the cost of that illusion, the cost of creating that island, not only is devastating the quality of our health care system, not only pushing unsustainable rises in prices, but also probably fundamentally undermining our hope of making a lot more progress in both health and quality of life. And that's where I came out. Thank you. Our next speaker today is Michael Cannon. He's the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute and the co-author of Healthy Competition, which is a great primer on healthcare policy. Thanks, Kurt, and thank you, David. Um, I want to get to questions uh, quickly, but I want to offer a few observations on uh, on David's article, but also on uh, being with David for the last two hours. It's kind of like been, I mean, I've only known David for about two hours now. We've spoken on the phone. But it's kind of like walking around with Jerry Maguire. Everyone comes up to him and says, hey, man, I read your memo. It was fantastic. So I want to encourage everyone who's here, in case you haven't read it yet, to read David Goldhill's article from this month's issue of The Atlantic. Because it really is one of the most, uh, I, I think, um, breathtaking and clear-eyed and optimistic analyses. And, and you might not see, you know, the, uh, I don't know if you would agree that it's optimistic, David, but I, think, I find uh, a lot to be optimistic about uh, when I read your article. Um, so I was blown away by that article. And, and, and David did say that he's not a libertarian. You know, he's, uh, but uh, I think that a lot of libertarians have responded to this article because they see uh, uh, permeating this article government failures that have created these sorts of problems that we see. So I'm going to torture the metaphor that you didn't want to torture anymore by talking about uh, where I think uh, 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 libertarians would dis agree and disagree with the perspective that you, uh, that you present in your article. Uh, on symptoms, I think we would agree. Uh, that rising costs, uh, the, uh, of course, healthcare costs are rising. That's not so much a problem as we're not getting our money's worth for, all, for what we're spending on healthcare. It's been estimated that one-third of healthcare expenditures, or $800 billion this year, uh, purchase medical care that doesn't provide any value to the patient whatsoever. Uh, a large reason for that, I think we would also agree, is that the cost of that care is, although it's borne by each of us, is hidden from us, so that we have no incentive uh, on an individual basis to weed out unnecessary medical expenditures. The quality problems, I think we would also agree, are, are, are pretty uh, are pervasive and horrific. Uh, you talk about medical errors killing 100,000 uh, patients each year, and 
we tolerate that in a way that we would not tolerate McDonald's letting one person die from E. coli. Um, also, uh, you mentioned that there's a, a, you talk a lot about mismanagement in our in our healthcare sector. How there's uh, your sushi bar has uh, has invested more in information technologies than uh, than most uh, hospitals have. We would also agree on diagnosis. You know, the problem here is not bad actors. The problem here is bad incentives. The consumer doesn't care about the money that he or she is spending, and so a lot of that money is not spent very well. People never spend other people's money as well as they spend their own. And the incentives that providers face are not created to serve the customer. They're created with someone else's mind, or, or, or those incentives don't reflect what the customers need. More often, it reflects what employers need, what's convenient for employers, or what's convenient for uh, the government and whoever's making those decisions. But I think where I would disagree with, uh, uh, with the perspective that you present in your article, uh, David, is, is on the remedy. A lot of conservatives, I think, uh, are drawn to the idea of mandatory catastrophic coverage because if people were spending more of their money out of pocket, if they had faced very high deductibles, then, yes, they'd be conscious about the cost of the services that they're, that they're purchasing. They would go to the doctor less often. They would avoid a lot of unnecessary services. And, yes uh, – that would not have much of an impact on their health overall. The best evidence suggests that consumers make pretty good decisions when uh, they're spending their own money, own money as opposed to when they're spending other people's money. But I, I think my concern is that a mandate for catastrophic coverage will not remain a mandate to purchase catastrophic coverage. The reason is if the government is going to require you to purchase something, then the government has to define what that is that it's requiring you to purchase so that you know if you're complying with that mandate. That power to define the content, the terms of every health insurance policy in the United States is a power that is inevitably captured by the healthcare industry. And we can see it in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is the one state in the nation that has made health insurance compulsory for uh, most or all residents. And since Massachusetts made health insurance compulsory, the legislature has required residents to purchase 16 additional types of coverage, whether they want it or not, has required them to uh, purchase less cost sharing. So actually they move away from catastrophic insurance because that is in the interest of the healthcare industry to have more money flowing through insurance, make the consumers less sensitive to cost. That, that means more revenue. Um, and so I think the reason that, uh, that, that uh, we... I think the reason that, that you, you were able to write the, you, your article is because of that dynamic. That very dynamic explains, I think, nearly all of the dysfunction uh, in America's healthcare sector. And let me give you uh, one example, uh, how, the one that began your article, uh, hospital-acquired infections and, and medical errors broadly. For 40 years now, the Medicare system, uh, the Medicare program, has actually offered financial rewards to doctors and hospitals when there is a medical error that harms the patient and requires follow-up services. Because Medicare adopted the dominant payment system that was in place when it was created in 1965, it's called fee-for-service. And when a medical error uh, results in a patient needing more services, that means that the doctors and maybe even the hospitals collect more in fees. And, and I think this is the, the, the point is not that, uh, that physicians and hospitals injure patients in order to collect more fees, but think of it from the perspective of a hospital administrator. If you invest in some error reduction strategy and you successfully bring down the rate of medical errors in your facility, what happens to your revenues? They fall because you're providing fewer follow-up services, you're collecting fewer fees, so the payment system that Medicare has locked into place for, uh, and, and Medicare being the largest purchaser of healthcare services in the world, this has a dramatic impact on how all medicine is organized uh, and, and a whole, how all, all hospitals run. Medicare has locked into place a payment system that penalizes uh, doctors, hospitals, if they try to reduce medical errors, if they adopt health information technologies. Uh, another benefit of uh, electronic medical records um, is not only can they avoid, help avoid taking patients for unnecessary procedures, they can avoid duplicative testing. If you have the, the results of your first MRI saved electronically, you're much less likely to have to t do another one because you lost the films from the first. But a hospital or uh, a health system or a physician's office that invests in that sort of electronic medical record system will, res uh, will have to provide fewer services and they will collect fewer fees. Again, 
the Medicare program has locked in a payment system that actually penalizes higher quality and penalizes greater efficiency. And now why, and, and why does this persist? Well, the reason, it doesn't have to be this way. There are other ways of paying doctors in hospitals. There are other ways of organizing medical practices. Kaiser Permanente uses electronic medical records. They use it to avoid errors and, and reduce duplicative testing. Why don't we see that sweeping the marketplace? Well, the answers are fairly simple. Number one, you don't have the choice of uh, switching to one of these health plans that uses electronic medical records because your employer makes that decision, not you. Uh, number and and Medicare, um, the Medicare uh, payment system is very difficult to to change for the same reason it's very difficult to give you that choice of what health uh, to give you to let you be the person who chooses your health plan. All that the incumbent producers have to do is stop the political process from changing the way things are today. That's all they have to do to stop economic progress. That's all they have to do to stop efficiency. Just prevent Medicare from changing its payment system because they're, the, they're making money under the current payment system. And if we move to a more efficient payment system, well, someone's uh, revenues are going to be threatened. And those, those providers, all they have to do is stop Medicare from making that change. If employers feel that their, um, that their uh, uh, labor force, that, 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 they, they, that they would have a hard time hiring workers if, or retaining workers if those workers were suddenly free to purchase health insurance on their own without a penalty from the federal government, they would... Um, all they have to do is block uh, the government from making that change that gives uh, patients – I'm sorry, that gives their workers that freedom. So – and I think that uh, I would also disagree on, uh, on, on uh, the necessity of having catastrophic coverage. Again, I offer the example of Kaiser Permanente. They actually have uh, plans with very low cost sharing that nevertheless operate with uh, – but because they operate with financial incentives uh, that encourage this sort of thing – uh, that encourages them to keep the cost uh, or to keep uh, um, the cost of primary and routine care down. Uh, they offer electronic medical records that offer uh, more convenient and quicker communications with their physicians. You can email your physician if you're in Kaiser Permanente uh, and in Hawaii. Uh, that has cut physician visits by 26%, which saves a lot of money. Even at the same time, the number of consultations have, have gone up. So face-to-face -face visits have gone down. Consultations have gone up. People are getting quicker access to primary care. It's costing both Kaiser and the patients less money. Um, and they're doing that even, uh, even though the the, even though it is not uh, catastrophic coverage that Kaiser is offering, even though the patients are insensitive to cost because Kaiser's financial incentives transfer the cost consciousness from the patient to the health plan. So uh, as, as you may have guessed, uh, 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 the libertarian remedy or, or a libertarian remedy would not involve mandates. It would not uh, involve requiring people to purchase a government-designed health plan. It would simply give people the freedom to control their health care dollars, uh, give people the freedom to control their health care decisions, including their choice of health plan, uh, through reforms like uh, Medicare reform that gives seniors a voucher, tax reform that lets workers control the money that their employer currently uses to purchase their health insurance, um, and then frees them to choose any health plan available in any state in the country. And the reason for this is uh, that, that this has appeal to libertarians is not only because consumers would make more cost-conscious decisions. Uh, but perhaps even more important, when we take these decisions out of the political process, when we take them out of the hands of politicians, that denies the industry, uh, incumbent healthcare providers and insurers, the power to block progress. And uh, I thank you, want to thank you all very much for coming and uh, look forward to your questions.